It's Code Switch. I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. And I'm Gene Demby. And that sound you just heard was from this weekend's demonstrations. That was from L.A. International Airport. And just like you, we're processing everything that's going on in the news on our beat. Like y'all, we're trying to do our best to keep up. But man, Shireen, it has been a fire hydrant. So check out our blog and social feeds for updates because things are changing by the minute, especially when it comes to the executive actions regarding the travel ban from seven countries with large Muslim populations Mm -hmm. and all that litigation trying to stop it. And Gene, we haven't even dug into the one President Trump signed before the travel bans on, and I'm doing your air quotes here, border (laughs) security and immigration enforcement. You remember that one? We were so young and innocent way back when, last week. Here's some of what President Trump said as he signed that executive action that could affect the approximately 11 million immigrants who are living in the U.S. illegally. As I've said repeatedly to the country, we are going to get the bad ones out the criminals and the drug deals and gangs and gang members and cartel leaders, the day is over when they can stay in our country and wreak havoc. We are going to get them out, and we're going to get them out fast. Given President Trump's executive actions on immigration last week, we're going to revisit one of our episodes that asked, what exactly makes a bad immigrant? And in the second half of the show, we'll talk to an economist about the high price of kicking out the so-called good immigrants. And here in studio to talk more about this is Adrian Florido, our Code Switch crew member who often covers immigration issues. Hey, Adrian. Hey, guys. So, Adrian, can you break down what President Trump said in these executive actions on immigration? Well, I mean, his language was was very clear. He said that any uh, unauthorized immigrant who is here who has any kind of criminal record, they, in his view, are bad immigrants and going to be deported. Mm-hmm. That's the priority. Any immigrant who has some kind of pending criminal charge but hasn't even been convicted, also priority for deportation. Even unauthorized immigrants who have done something for which they could be charged but haven't actually been charged for, also gone under his priorities. Wow. Wow. So that sounds like a a really big change and shift in policy. Yeah, I mean, it's huge. But, you know, this idea of deporting the bad immigrants, you know, the immigrants that the government decides are bad. This is not new. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Obama administration did this too. It often drew this distinction between good immigrants and bad immigrants that had to be deported. Um, You probably remember that Obama's big thing was the government deports felons, not families, right? Right. Right. But it does seem like Trump's administration has a much broader, someone say huge, (laughs) huge. uh, definition of what it means to be a bad immigrant. Yeah. And in fact, some advocates think that the language in Trump's executive order could actually be interpreted to mean that all immigrants who are here illegally are these, quote unquote, bad immigrants who need to be deported. Hmm. Okay. It's interesting because these these advocates, um, a lot of them for a long time have been trying to fight this very idea, right, that you can distinguish between which immigrants are good and which immigrants are bad because it's just not that simple, they say. And now under Trump, it feels like it's being simplified even more. Yeah. And so back in October, Adrian, you did this story about a man named Jose Alvarez, who you used to illustrate the idea that a lot of immigrants who are undocumented don't really sit neatly on either side of this good immigrant, bad immigrant divide, right? Yeah. And I went to meet Jose on the Mexican side of the U.S.-Mexico border. That's the side of me walking through the turnstiles at the border crossing from San Diego to Tijuana, by the way. So I crossed the border on foot, and he picked me up there in an old pickup truck. 
Hola, ¿cómo está? Hola. ¿Qué tal? So I went to see José because his story illustrates this shift that's happening in the immigrant rights movement right now. For a long time, the face of the immigrant rights movement has been these immigrants who went to college or served with distinction in the military, immigrants whose parents brought them as children, you know, these so-called dreamers. But José isn't any of those things. In fact, he's actually got a criminal record. And he's here in Tijuana now because he got deported. Uh, still, he's become this cause for grassroots groups who are trying to change this whole narrative about which immigrants deserve to stay in the U.S. All right, so after picking me up at the border, José drove me about 30 minutes to basically the farthest outskirts of Tijuana. To a hilly, unplanned part of the city where paved streets start turning into unpaved streets. He's staying in a house owned by a family member. Está bonita la casa. Since José was deported in February, he hasn't had a whole lot to do. So he's been fixing this house up, painting it. It looks really nice. He said he's tried to make it nice because his wife and kids drive down from Long Beach outside of L.A. to visit him every other weekend. His whole family, his wife and six kids, they're all U.S. citizens. So he and I sat on the patio in front of the house to talk. And it only took about a minute into our interview for José to be overcome by emotion and tears when he started telling me about his family. José says he went to California when he was younger because there was more opportunity there. And all of his children were born there, and he thinks they had a better life because of it. But it hasn't been easy. His story is complicated, and you need to hear the details to understand why. So Jose first came illegally to the U.S. in 1979. Seven years later, 1986, this huge immigration law passes that gives amnesty to millions of immigrants living in the U.S. illegally. So now Jose was legal. He got a green card. He had a few kids. He was working in a dry cleaner. And then in 1995, he screwed up. He said a guy he knew asked him to help him move some drugs, some crystal meth. And Jose is pretty straight up about this. He says he agreed to help him, and they got caught. And Jose was convicted of two drug charges, and he spent more than three years in prison. He says when he got out in 1999, they took his green card away and they deported him. But he crossed the border back to California again almost immediately to reunite with his family. And from that time on, he had a pretty normal life, as normal as you can have if you're in the country illegally. He worked, and he and his wife bought a house. One of his sons actually became a Marine. Okay, so now fast forward to February 2016. This is the key moment. José is picking his son up from work in Long Beach, and he gets pulled over for a broken taillight. And to make a long story short, the officer learns that immigration officials want to talk to José, so he turns him over to them. José says that immigration agents drove him to Tijuana in a van. And on the way, one of the agents asked him, wow, you've been here for 20 years without any problems? And José told the agent, yeah, I, I work. 
Okay, so this is where the idea that we talked about earlier of the Obama administration saying it deports felons, not families. This is where Jose really runs out of luck because the government places Jose on the bad side of that line. Even if he has a family and served his time, the fact that he's a convicted felon and had been previously deported is what matters. And he's actually permanently barred from coming back to the U.S. ever because of laws that were passed in the 80s and 90s. And so remember how we were saying earlier that grassroots groups are trying to change the narrative about who gets to stay and who has to go? They're trying to make an example of Jose. This is a person who day in and day out would bring home the daily bread, right? This is from a press conference outside of Immigration and Customs Enforcement's office in L.A. This is a person who, you know, cared for his family. This is a person who, you know, was, was a um, model citizen. And none of this mattered because of a 21-year-old conviction. So while activists are making noise about this case, lawyers are also working on it. My name is Jessica Bansell. Jessica Bansell represents Jose Alvarez. She works for a group called the National Day Labor Organizing Network, NDLON for short, and it's trying to get Jose back into the country. One of the things that's compelling to us about Mr. Alvarez's case is he's a person who's so much more than this one conviction, and it seems obvious in his case partly because the conviction is so old and partly because... In every other way, he really is sort of this model of the good immigrant and the good bad immigrant. So it sort of problematizes this idea that you can make this good bad distinction by looking at someone's criminal history. Jessica's group, Endilon, says they know that Jose Alvarez is not the most sympathetic case. But actually, that's exactly why Endilon is taking on this case. It's about principle. One of our main principles has always been that if you can fight for the people who are like most marginalized, most at the edge, to lift up the rights of everybody, then then you have the broadest victory. It's harder, but then when you win, it's like really a broad victory. Um, and so, I think partly for that reason, like if you win Jose Alvarez's case, you do win for a lot more people um, than if you win for the valedictorian of Harvard. So, Jean and Shireen, that is uh, Jose's story. And we're back in the studio, Adrian, and you did the story in October. So do you have an update for us? Yeah, so Jose is still in Tijuana, still hoping to get back into the U.S. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the time that I did this story, his lawyer had put together a case that she hoped was going to convince immigration officials to let Jose back into the country. She was relying on this thing called humanitarian parole, which is like a little carve-out in the law that makes exceptions for people. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, At the time, immigration told me that those cases are decided case by case, but that Jose's criminal and deportation history made him a top priority for deportation. And now with these new executive actions from the Trump administration, is that going to change things? Because it seemed like it was already hard back then. Yeah, well, I called his lawyer a couple days ago, and she told me in theory, nothing should change because there doesn't seem to be any changes to this part of the rules that would allow her to make this request. I hear about the... Yeah, but... With all the changes under the Trump administration, you know, the change in tenor about how tough we're going to be on immigrants and immigration in this country, she thinks it may be harder for her to get Jose back into the country. That's Adrian Florido from the Code Switch crew. He focuses a lot on immigration and is reporting. Thanks so much, Adrian. Yeah, thanks, guys. All right, when we come back after a quick break, we're going to talk to an economist from a libertarian think tank who says kicking out all the quote-unquote best immigrants could have disastrous consequences. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Ben & Jerry's, a B Corp committed to using the power of business to advance progressive social change. 
Since the company's earliest days, Ben & Jerry's has been about a lot more than just euphoric ice cream. Today, they believe that dialogue can bridge differences, promoting a more just and equitable future for all. Join Ben & Jerry's on a journey to better understand issues of race in America and get involved at BenJerry.com slash racial justice. Latino USA has something special this week, a radio documentary about the controversial Puerto Rican independence fighter Oscar Lopez Rivera, who was given clemency by President Obama just a few days before he left office. It's a story with secret identities and safe houses, an FBI manhunt, and even a little bit of revolution. Whoa. Yeah. Find Latino USA on the NPR One app or at npr.org. All right, y'all, we're back. Before the break, we heard a story of someone who complicates the idea of, you know, what's a good immigrant and what's a bad immigrant. And dreamers have been held up for years now, Gene, as the good immigrants. Right. But on ABC last week, the president was asked if they should be worried about deportation. They shouldn't be very worried. They are here illegally. They shouldn't be very worried. I do have a big heart. We're going to take care of everybody. We're going to have a very strong border. We're going to have a very solid border where you have great people that are here that have done a good job. They should be far less worried. We'll be coming out with policy on that over the next period of four weeks. So uh, they shouldn't be very worried. They are here illegally. I have no idea what to make of that. And sometime in the next four weeks, something will happen. So we're in for more of this, Shereen. Immigrants and their advocates are really worried about this, too. What happens if President Trump decides to roll back the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, also known as DACA, Mm -hmm. which granted relief from deportations to people who were brought to the U.S. when they were kids? And so for one answer, we reached out to Ike Brannon of the Cato Institute. That's a libertarian think tank here in D.C., Ike Brandon served as the chief economist for John McCain's presidential campaign back in 2008 and as the chief economist for the Republican Policy Committee. We talked to Brandon about a study he did with his colleague, Logan Albright, about the economic impact of kicking out all those people who were on DACA from the country. Uh, Mr. Trump talked on the campaign trail and now in his short time as president about deporting bad immigrants, criminals. He used those two words pretty interchangeably a lot. How would you describe the immigrants who are taking part in the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, which was put in place by President Obama? I I wouldn't call them uh, good immigrants. I would call them the best immigrants. They are, uh, on average, they're better people than you and me, at least from an economic perspective. (laughs) (laughs) As you guys probably know, there are children who were brought by their parents when they were minors to the United States. Most of Mm -hmm. them know no other country but the United States. And what DACA gave them the permission to do was to basically get a work permit and go to college. And and thus far, their performance has been uh, exceptional. So um, just one statistic that uh, somebody gave me earlier today, um, DACA students who are in college have a student retention rate of uh, almost 95%. Wow. Uh, what makes them so much more likely to stay in college, right? I mean, they uh, they're, they're, they're bright people. They're motivated. There's a high opportunity cost if they uh, don't screw up. So... Uh, you know, so I was a professor in the University of Wisconsin system for a while, and mm-hmm. I think one of the problems we had in Wisconsin, uh, student retention rates are really low. And part of it is that a lot of kids who are 18, 19, 20, they don't quite see the opportunity cost of remaining in college. They they say, oh, look, I can go get a job on construction or something. And I think life has focused the DACA recipients' uh, minds on the opportunity cost of not getting a college degree. So you, you've been making the case that a repeal or rollback of DACA would hurt the U.S. economy, and we want to know how. All right. So let's say you rolled it back. There's two different ways you could do that. You can say, A, all of you are now illegal. You can't go to college and get funding. You don't have work permits. 
Um, and the other one is, hey, not only are we going to do that, but we're also going to figure out a way to track you all down and deport you. And that's 750,000 people. That's right. That's right. And so if you assume that you could track them down and uh, get them out of the country, that cost to the economy in terms of government spending on this, as well as the lost economic activity from these people, over $200 billion. And the cost to the government itself in terms of lost tax revenue and the money associated with deporting these people would be uh, nearly $60 billion. Wow. That's if we deported them all. That's right. But the first example you gave was, well, if we just don't let them go to school. Right. So that that would be lower, right? Because all these people would be doing a job that wouldn't pay nearly as well. So here's the way we did the study. Some people at the Hoover Institute looked at a proposal a couple years ago to expand H-1B visa holders uh, and add another 650,000 of them. Can we just really quickly explain what H-1B visa is? Oh, sure. An H-1B visa is a temporary work visa that goes to skilled immigrants as, as people who are doing IT stuff in uh, Silicon Valley. Now, it goes well beyond that, but that's kind of the typical example. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Logan, my co-author, came up with the idea, well, let's look at that study and let's compare DACA recipients to H-1B visa recipients and see how similar they are. And the answer is that they're really similar. Uh, hmm. DACA recipients are a little bit younger, but they are pretty productive people. Most of them are in college. Most of them are going to graduate from college. All we did is we just compared the, the wage rates right now to uh, the H-1B visas. We used their numbers and we extrapolated our results from there. And by doing it this way, we're actually very conservative because the main reason the DACA recipients' wages are lower than the H-1B visas is not because of skills. It's, it's solely because of age. And what I'm hearing is an economic argument for why rolling back DACA is not a good idea. What about the moral argument that deporting these young people will break up families? And in some cases, we're talking about mixed status families. The argument that this is going to have a really traumatic impact on Latinos across the country, many of whom are U.S. citizens. Let let me stay it out front like I'm an economist. I I rarely, (laughs) I stay away from your moral mumbo jumbo. Um, But I'm married to an immigrant. And uh, at one point when we got married, her immigration status was clouded by that. So we briefly dealt with this possibility that we might have to move abroad for a a period of time. The pressure and uh, stress I felt for that has nothing comparable to what uh, illegal immigrants would feel like, look, you know, I, I think if we were being truly moral and Christian and approach this from uh, that perspective, we would have no limits on immigration. We would have open borders. And uh, I really think, and I've said this before, the way to make America great would be to uh, fully open its borders and allow anyone to move here that wanted to. Is your wife Latina? Uh, my wife is a Turk. Yeah. Oh, she's a Turk. Hmm. I saw that you got your BA in Spanish. So, <laughs> do you speak Turkish too? <laughs> <laughs> my daughter speaks Turkish with my uh, wife, and I, I studied it for a, a semester, and uh, it's it's beyond me. So, w- could you talk about the logistics of a DACA rollback? So, right, theoretically, uh, since DACA was created via executive order, President Trump could uh, rescind that executive order or issue a new executive order to pull it back. You know, I, I'm not sure if Congress has the, uh, the the stomach to deal with it. Right. The last couple of times that Congress has, has contemplated this, the last two or three years of the uh, Bush administration, and then um, Marco Rubio tried to do something after 2012, it didn't end all that well. And I think everybody who had something to do with it kind of regrets having having done that. So I think it's a very difficult lift. How did it end in those cases? The Republicans who, uh, who uh, led the way on this uh, suffered a uh, severe political backlash. So I worked for Senator McCain on his presidential campaign. 
and uh, that certainly didn't do us any favors in uh, 2008. And Marco Rubio, I think, uh, regrets the role he played in trying to get immigration reform. I think in the presidential primary of uh, 2016, it did not help him at all. Hmm. But you were talking about the very radical idea of having fully open borders and no limits on immigration. What do you think of President Trump's recent executive actions on immigration? Um you know, naturally, I'm disappointed. I think uh, Syrian refugees are people we we should want here, uh, not just from kind of like my Christian perspective, but um, I think also from an economic perspective. I, I think in general, more immigration adds a lot to any economy. It adds a lot to any society as well. And I think President Trump thinks that his first uh, responsibility is to protect the well-being of people. And it's impossible to guarantee that we will never have any future terrorist attack. And I think trying to go from 0.00001% and move that decimal point one place, when it comes at a really, really high cost, I think it's time to kind of think about other alternatives. Thanks, Ike. Sure thing. That's Ike Brannon. He's a visiting fellow at the Cato Institute. He wrote a report with Logan Albright about the economic cost of an immediate repeal to DACA. We don't want no devils in the house. Yes, we want the law. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> and we're going to wrap things up this week with a listener who had a special message for me, Jean. Don't be jealous. Shireen, you closed the most recent podcast by recommending Kendrick. Earlier in the day, I had pulled up the music of the civil rights era, my generational reference point as a middle-aged, middle-class white woman. Here's my request. What would be your playlist for these troubled times? Love you all. Jane Zimmerman. Bye. Thanks, Jane. We love you, too. Thank you, Jane. Uh, Jean, do you have anything for today? Uh, my song is Ultralight Beam by Kanye. Yeah, I know Kanye is sort of, uh, <laughs> Kanye's sort of a polarizing figure right now. But the most important part of that song, to me, is Chance's verse at the end chance the rapper mm-hmm. who is at this point like becoming a national treasure but that part of the song which is about being assailed and about like overcoming all the stuff that part of the song is cathartic that part of the song is celebratory you can feel the lyrics the spirit coming in braille coming out of underground coming follow the trail i made sunday candy i'm never going to hell i met kanye west i'm never going to fail i love that verse it's the song i play every morning before i run i mean it just like gets me in the like okay this is gonna be a day Let's get it. Let's do it. You know what I mean? This is my part. Nobody else speak. This is my part. Nobody else speak. This little light of mine. All right. That's our show. We want to hear from you. Our email is codeswitch at npr.org. And you can follow us on Twitter at NPR Codeswitch. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found. Walter Ray Watson produced this episode with original music by Ramteen R. Bluey. Special thanks to producer Luke Vanderplug and a shout out to the rest of the Code Switch team. Adrian Florido, Karen Grigsby-Bates, Kat Chow, Leah Danella, and George Encinas. Our editors are Netta Ulibi, Juleka Lantigua-Williams, and Keith Woods. I'm Shereen Marisol Miraji. And I'm Gene Demby. Be easy. Peace. This is everything.